Welcome to Islam for Christians. This is episode 101, Biblical Figures in Islam, part 17, or the New Testament, the Sources, part 1, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Where did the stories in the Quran come from? We're talking specifically about the New Testament. The, the Old Testament, that's a whole other thing. But the New Testament, where did the Quran get all these stories about John the Baptist and Mary and Jesus? Now, I should prepare you by saying that we're moving into different territory here. And not just because this stuff really is a minefield for religious believers of different faiths. Now, yes, it is that, but this is also venturing into a slightly different genre, so to speak. It's, it's a different thing than we're used to. It's kind of like a slide from comparative theology, which is mostly what we've been doing, and religion, and then putting one foot into the world of what is called literary criticism. Now, that does not mean what it sounds like. Like, ah, literature, bad. I criticize this bad literature. Literary criticism in a religious context, it's to think about the Quran and the Bible from a literary perspective as story, at least in a limited sense. The concentration will be on Christian and Muslim interpretations of these stories. You know, not we're not going to go into those interpretations of non-believers who tend to parse through these stories as if they're the epic of Gilgamesh or Beowulf. This is from the uh, perspective of the believer, be it Christian or Muslim. So for a little while, at least partially, we're going to be approaching this from a literary perspective, not entirely a faith perspective. Of course, that is something else entirely. Uh, for a Muslim, the source of the Quran stories regarding Jesus, they come from God, period, full stop. But if you're looking at it from a literary perspective, you will find some common, probable sources. Now, first off, what does it mean to look at something from a literary perspective, from a historical literary perspective? Well, the first step is to take God out of the equation entirely, to remove faith from the equation, to remove any divine explanation. So, I mean, you can see why this is a little different. And again, I don't want to go as far as the secular people, um, because usually the idea is that everything written in anything came from one of two places, an earlier written source or the mind of the author. And as you may have guessed, I actually hate this approach. I really do. It's reductionist and frankly, it's lacking in humility, especially from this far away in history. So even something holy is studied the way you would study, say, Shakespeare. And I should say, 
Muslims hardly ever do this. But Christians, we tend to do this with our own scriptures, particularly in the modern day. You might be shocked to know just how normal a practice this is, really, even among believers. So if you're at a modern seminary and you are taking your first gospel class, the first book you might be assigned is Mark as Story. And the title is exactly what it sounds like. It's about the gospel of Mark, and it's about how to read the gospel from the perspective of story, and strictly to think of it as story. This is also called literary criticism, like I said before. This means to read it in a critical manner. In other words, to dissect it in a certain way. To not just think about the characters and the story, but to go beyond that. To think about what the author is trying to convey and why. And what, in the historical background, would be important to know. Not just what is being said, but why. And maybe even what isn't being said. Um, but again, why? For, for what purpose? Who is the audience? Things like that. It's a very natural approach for a university, and it can sometimes, at least, help faith rather than hinder it. But I always thought the emphasis on that was a bit strange for seminarians. I can't imagine many sermons would come to mind from this material. This is one reason why, you know, as my pastor once joked, seminary should actually be called cemetery, because that's where faith goes to die. Anyway, the first focus will naturally be on Mark. Why Mark? Because it is the first of what are called the Synoptic Gospels. From a literary perspective, it is considered source material for Matthew and Luke. Now, John, of course, is a whole other thing. That's, his, that's its own thing. But I would emphasize that John is also confirmation of the other three. It was written last for a reason. So Matthew and Luke are largely considered to have come from Mark, and then from a collection of Jesus's sayings, which is an unknown and hypothetical document called Q. Now, the Muslims don't dissect their materials in this way. The idea of Q would seem kind of strange. Q, it's for Quran, right? Uh, the Quran is the Quran is the Quran. That's it. But if you take the story approach, you would find a mix of Mark and Q, so to speak, or really Luke and Q. And we'll get to that in later episodes. That may have been confusing. What I mean is that there are clearly things that came from earlier sources and things that came from unknown sources. This is about the known sources. So we'll be talking about those sources, but I should also caution you not to be too reductionist here. In other words, thinking that the Quran is just regurgitating old stories that the church long ago decided were fake. There is much unknown in the story of the Islamic Jesus. You know, the Quran has a hypothetical Q document of its own, well, sort of. 
an unknown source. Of course, I can see a Muslim rolling his eyes right now, and somewhat justifiably so. So what is that unknown source? Well, obviously, that unknown source is God. Fair enough. And in a way, I actually agree with you. But you can't really study an unknown source, even though it's just as important as the known sources. So just by studying the known sources, as we're going to be doing, it's, it's a massively incomplete picture. Now, do you see the problem with this general approach? But the known sources, as imperfect a picture as they are, they are still useful and, frankly, interesting. If not only just for concrete evidence of what may have been in the milieu, so to speak, the, the zeitgeist, the general aura of the time when the Quran was revealed. And it's doubly important to know this because of the nature of Muhammad's place. The Quran has a very unusual setting. This was not a normal place. This wasn't some well-trodden path on the Silk Road. This is an isolated place, comparatively speaking, an isolated place. And the stories people were told and the things they believed, much of this would not be known to most of the world, meaning the part of the world we think of when we think of this time period in history. This is not Byzantium or Persia or India or China. This wasn't a terribly literate society either making details much harder to come by. Really, if we're being honest, if not for Muhammad, no one would have any idea what had happened in Mecca at this time. Okay, so what did these people know? And like I hinted at earlier, Luke is a source for the Quran, we think. And it was probably the only gospel that would have been known, at least among the canonical gospels recognized by Christians. And we'll get to that later. But I want to start with some apocryphal gospels before we get to that, because it gives you some idea of where some of these stories you have been hearing are coming from. Much of the known sources, the sources not from the canonical gospels, those sources relate to the early life of Jesus, and of course his cousin, John the Baptist. But first, what is an apocryphal gospel? When the gospel texts were standardized a few hundred years after the crucifixion, the church sought to dismiss those that did not have apostolic origin, basically, Apostolic means from the apostles, having their source in the apostles. Not that the apostles had to actually write the text. Uh, there's Mark, for example, which is basically the gospel as given by Peter. But it had to be traced back to some kind of apostolic authority. The gospels were oral traditions at the beginning, and the ones we know from church were all codified by the first century. But that doesn't mean others were not being written and continued to be written or had existed for a while. Those gospels are called the apocryphal gospels, 
And there are four of them that appear, at least non-Muslims, they appear to be sources of the Islamic stories about Jesus. Or, at minimum, these stories must have been known in the religious communities in the area at the time. So these are those four apocryphal gospels that kind of look like source material for these Quranic stories. There is first the infancy gospel of Thomas, the proto-evangelium of James, also known as the gospel of James. Then there is the gospel of pseudo-Matthew and the Arabic infancy gospel. We will go over all of these, but for the rest of the episode, I want to focus on the infancy gospel of Thomas. Why the infancy gospel of Thomas? Because it's the only one with a story you haven't actually heard yet. That is, if you have heard the earlier episodes. This one has to do with the child Jesus. So it didn't really fit into the early episodes about John the Baptist or his parents or Mary. Now, I'm going to read a part of the infancy gospel of Thomas in a bit. As it happens, the relevant part is right up front at the beginning. I toyed for a while with the idea of reading the apocryphal gospels and commenting on the whole thing, but this would just take way too much time. And I also don't want to give anyone the impression that the apocryphal gospels parallel Muslim belief in any major way, because they don't. The Quran may use these as a source occasionally, but the same is true of Luke. And obviously, the Quran does not agree entirely with Luke. <laughs> Just really small parts of it. And that's the same thing you see in these apocryphal gospels. Just small little chunks made it into the Quran. And often very, very small part, parts of these gospels. Okay. So this story, not surprisingly, because it's at the beginning of the infancy gospel of Thomas, it has to do with a child Jesus. Oh, the <laughs> I should note, the infancy gospel of Thomas, this was obviously not written by Thomas, not the Thomas, or at least, you know, Thomas the Apostle, that actual Thomas, doubting Thomas. And it's not the same as the gospel of Thomas. Don't confuse it with that which is another apocryphal gospel. This particular one focuses on the childhood of Jesus, usually uh, said to be 5 to 12 years old. And it's almost an imagining of what it would be like as a powerful child came to grips with his newfound power and the knowledge that he is actually God. And no one really knows who wrote this thing but it was probably written around the late 2nd century, so let's say 190 or so. It's well after the other Gospels existed in their current form. My guess is that someone wanted to fill a gap in the Jesus story, and this was the response. It was probably a well-meaning Christian who didn't understand the theological implications of what was being said, and you'll see that a lot in the apocryphal Gospels that we will see here. But I don't want to go too deeply 
you know, too down the rabbit hole into the merits of these gospels. There is the obvious implication that if these gospels are bunk, you know, if they're false, and then that story made it into the Quran, well, what does that tell you about the Quran? But it really is not quite that simple. Because when you look at these, Christians will call this something false. Uh, this is a heretic or a charlatan misusing the name of Thomas. But, a Muslim may retort, you can't exactly call it untrue either. I personally would say it's way less likely to be true than the four normal Gospels. By a massive amount, really. But that doesn't necessarily mean the entire thing was untrue. The parts that make it into the Quran are such a tiny sliver of these writings. Uh, really, maybe somewhere from 1% to 5%. And then a Muslim could further say, hey, let's say it is a lie. Even if it is a lie. Meaning the apocryphal gospel is a lie. Maybe it was just God writing for an audience who believed it. Or maybe the Quran is saying the whole thing is true. Who are you to say that it isn't? Uh, the conversation can go in just a billion directions from there. But I really don't want to go down that rabbit hole, like I said. The main point here is just to help you see the similarities, the overlap. As far as the merit of these Gospels, obviously, I agree with the Church on this. But I don't want to get into this true or untrue historical argument, because really, the historical argument isn't super relevant to what we're doing here. The most important thing, at least for what we're talking about here, is simply that the story exists, and that the story made it into the Quran. Okay, so no more preambles and caveats and tangents. Here it is, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. This is chapter 2, which opens the Gospel after a short preamble by someone claiming to be Thomas the Israelite. Who is Thomas the Israelite? That could mean plenty of things, too. And like I said, no more tangents. This is it. Chapter 2 of the Gospel of Thomas. The child Jesus was five years old. After it rained, he was playing at the ford of a flowing stream. And stirring up the dirty waters, he gathered them into pools. And he made them clean and excellent, ordering them by word alone and not ordering them by a deed. Then, having taken soft clay from the mud, he formed twelve sparrows from it. But it was the Sabbath when he did these things, and there were many other children with him. So a certain Jew saw the child Jesus with the other children doing these things. He went to Joseph his father and slandered the child Jesus, saying that he made clay on the Sabbath which isn't permissible, and he formed twelve sparrows. And Joseph went and rebuked him, in Jesus, saying, Why are you doing these things on the Sabbath? But Jesus clapped his hands, ordering the birds with a shout in front of all, and said, Go, take flight like living beings. And the sparrows, taking flight, went away squawking. And having seen this, the Pharisee was amazed, and reported it to all of his friends. 
it's a good story. Um, but let's put on our literary critic hat to see even more that might be here. For instance, what is the author, whoever it is, what is the author trying to convey? Well, given the timing and the likely origin of this, you know, when it was written, it would make sense that an author would like to basically preview the success of the 12 apostles who went to the ends of the earth proclaiming the gospel, thus the 12 sparrows that he molded and sent out into the world. You also see parallels with the normal gospels of a Pharisee criticizing Jesus for quote-unquote working on the Sabbath. The Pharisees didn't like that work, and they certainly don't like the work of the 12 apostles either, um, later on, of course. And this may be hinting at that as sort of a foreshadowing device. And it's a good story. If you're going to pull one thing from this work, this is definitely the pick of the litter. So, moving over to the Quran, how does the Quran use this story? It doesn't actually tell the story itself. It's just referenced twice. And it's basically referencing the miracles of Jesus. And this was just one of them. So, for those only familiar with the Bible, um, the references that really stand out, I'll give you here. The first one, Surah 3, verses 48 to 49. And Allah will teach him writing and wisdom, the Torah and the gospel, and make him a messenger to the children of Israel to proclaim, I have come to you with a sign from your Lord. I will make for you a bird from clay. Breathe into it, and it will become a real bird by Allah's will. I will heal, heal the blind and the leper and raise the dead to life by Allah's will. And I will prophesize what you eat and store in your houses. Surely in this is a sign for you if you truly believe. And then the second one, this is Surah 5, verse 110. And on Judgment Day, Allah will say, O Jesus, Son of Mary, remember my favor upon you and your mother, how I supported you with the Holy Spirit, so you spoke to people in your infancy and adulthood, how I taught you writing, wisdom, the Torah, and the gospel, how you molded a bird from clay by my will and breathed into it and became and it became a real bird by my will how you healed the blind and the lepers by my will how you brought the dead to life by my will how i prevented the children of israel from harming you when you came to them with clear proofs and the disbelievers among them said this is nothing but pure magic. So there you see the bird twice. It's not exactly a huge part of the Quran there, and little Islamic doctrine will come of this story. But theologically, there is only one important point being made in both these references, that Jesus, 
by God's will, performed miracles. And those miracles just happen to be in the infancy gospel of Thomas. And that's pretty much it for the infancy gospel of Thomas. But before we're done, I want to note here, when talking about the relationship between Christianity and Islam, it is important to remember that the terms Christian and gospel probably did not mean the same thing to everyone in the world at the time. It certainly meant one thing in the places the organized church had a significant presence. But in Arabia, that's why I said this is a very different setting. So in Arabia, the word gospel, at least in the zeitgeist, in the culture that would produce Islam, it probably meant something slightly different. And as we'll see in the coming episodes, so did the words nativity and baby Jesus. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.